He's your curly head mate who's ready to go Nobody knows snow like reggae no snow He's ready to blow like an atomic reactor This is the show where we call it Chill Factor Talk on the pow, are you ready right now? There's icons galore and they're ready to chow We got more power than a snowflower tractor Dropping the clutch, yeah, this is Chill Factor G'day, I'm Reggae Ellis and welcome to the Chill Factor podcast presented by Swiss Tourism. Now, I've got a big show coming up. My guest in this episode is one of the icons of the sport and free skiing pioneer, Glenn Plake. Uh, he's renowned for skiing moguls, big mountains, or the flamboyant style that has made him one of the most recognisable skiers in the world over the last three decades. Glenn grew up in South Lake Tahoe, California, skiing heavenly and also spending a lot of time in the Sierra backcountry. In the late 80s and early 90s, uh, Glenn appeared in a series of ski films by legendary filmmaker Greg Stump, including 1988 seminal Blizzard of Oz, one of the most influential ski films of all time, one that put free skiing, extreme big mountain skiing on the map and also put Glenn Plake on the map. Now, the next 17 years, Glenn appeared in 15 ski films, including a few Warren Miller movies, and during that period was the most famous skier in the world. He's also one of the first real professional skiers with strong support from a number of sponsors, including being the first international on Australian surf brand Rip Curl Snow Team in the early 90s. Now, Glenn has enjoyed a long and enduring career, uh, still going strong now, spending a lot of time in Mammoth Mountain in California and also in Chamonix, where he and his wife Kimberly have had a second home for 30 years. Now, Glenn absolutely loves skiing. He loves talking about skiing and he's just a great person to have a chat to. So I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy this one. Let's drop in. All right, Glenn Plake, welcome to Chill Factor and thanks for joining us. <laughs> it's great to be here. I, wow. A lot of a lot of memories are going on right now, to be very, very honest. I'm freaking out, actually. It's been way too long since I've been down under <laughs> <laughs> well um i'm trying to think you know i um you before we got, got on air we were talking about your trip to um yeah down here to threadbow i'm actually in threadbow now i live in threadbow and right. um i actually met you awesome. early 90s i think would have been yes i think you're here on a uh your then sponsor i think it must have been oakley with uh stevie lee well-known australian right. Yeah, I think Mike. Yes, Stevie. Warbs was probably around. Hatchup was still around and and yeah. uh or were all around. And depending on the year, I may have celebrated a birthday there. And uh either way, I know I've had some unbelievable times there. I've I've been there more than once. I've I've got a go the cow poster in my in my guest bedroom with the with the cow like flying through the air just says go the cow oh, um, blue i know it's been changed now but i still have it <laughs> <laughs> That's... um and i've been on the i've been summit on i've been um been on the summit of kosciuszko uh, more than more than a couple of times and yeah <laughs> yeah well that's probably one of your hardest climbs <laughs> yeah that was uh yeah really really good memories down there for sure for actually sure. Speaking about that time, I actually published a one-off snow magazine years ago called Snow Zone, and I had two double-page spreads of you 
jumping off the runner of a helicopter in the backcountry. Yep. Uh, here yeah. on the range. Right. Yeah. Hey, hang on, Kimberly. Yeah. Grab the uh, grab the old resume book if you can find it. And the book, the magazine, Snow Zone, if we can find it. I probably have a copy of it. Oh, really? I mean, really? I, 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 haven't got a, <laughs> I haven't got a copy, and I was looking for it this morning. And I got this is, yeah, because that was one of I, the, I know I've got a copy. It's just a matter of finding it. It may be in this old resume, and or if I ever, I probably should know right where it is during pandemic times when we are all going through all that kind of garbage, because I've got. If you don't have any copies, chances are I probably have 10 knowing my wife. She's a bit of a hoarder as far as our our career is concerned. Well, I hope so. I hope. Anyway, sorry. I got uh, So we're, she's looking at that. And um, with that said, yes, we were dropping off the skids. And uh, that was kind of a surprise deal. Um, certainly, I'm not afraid to talk about it now. I mean, I'm way past, way past statute of limitations. <laughs> yeah, I think it was um, at the time. But if I remember right. I don't think we could land. No, that we were out. Uh, yeah, that was a a surprise. Actually, um, it was a birthday, and I the for some reason one of the heli pilots. I don't know how the whole thing took place, but the next thing you know, we were flying around out in that area. And I asked him. I said, "You mind if I was to jump off the skids of this helicopter? I've always kind of wanted to do that." And he said, "Yeah, yeah, sure." I wouldn't have a problem with that. He goes, um, but you need to do it on this side. And I was like, okay. And so he took the, took the door off the helicopter and, and uh, I went out over this, you know, out over the edge of the cornice there. So I had a nice steep landing. But um, anyways, I asked him, I said, why? And I thought it was from a, from a weight and balance or something, you know, I said, why, uh, why do I have to jump out this side? I mean, specifically and he goes well i want to watch <laughs> so because he made me jump out the made me jump out the pilot side <laughs> and how did they pick you up just did you just sort of reach up and grab the skid after the no, run? i was inside i put i put my skis on inside and got out onto the skids and uh and then basically just stood there and when it was time i just kind of sidestepped off the skid in the way and down we went it was cool it was really cool actually and after the run, after the descent, how'd you get? Did you hike back up, or did they pick you up at the bottom? No, we were flying around out there. Like I say, I don't know if it was officially legal, but I was... know oh, highly illegal <laughs> in the national park. <laughs> I don't think we were in the park or something. <laughs> no, I think because you didn't land, it was all okay. Yeah, yeah. There was there was some. It was one of those. Yeah, talk, don't talk. It's in the big white fi bolt, uh, folder, huh? it's called snow zone it'll be in all the australia stuff anyways yeah. um um yeah so i don't know yeah if it was official or unofficial or what have you yeah there's well, go the cow ad right there well that's australia time. look through there and see Funny. you gotta try and find it the extra She's oh. got it all out. Like I got. There's Stephen Lee right there. I mean, there's pictures of me and Stephen Lee. <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting closer. Yeah, it may, Look, it me and Stephen Lee. One-off one mag. I did it once. Me and Stephen Lee doing tip rolls together back in the days, doing a promo. Oh, that must be <laughs> Creek or something. Oh, nice. 
Me and Stephen Lee jumping in the old days. That's yeah. me and Stephen jumping. <laughs> Funny. That is cool. All right. Anyways, it's in here somewhere. I'm sure of it. Oh, that's key extra. I'll I'll keep looking for. It. Yeah, if you can find it, you find it. Otherwise, um, what was it called? Ski zone, not zone. powder hound. That the powder hound was a different snow zone. Place. It was literally there's um, Stephen and me. Yeah, there's Stephen and me skiing, doing promo, and then there's another one with cowboy with my. Uh, he has an Akubra on, and I got a Mohawk. See that one? That's pretty funny. <laughs> Stay <laughs> <on the> <laughs> All right, I'm gonna look for it and I'll send it to you if I don't have it. And yeah. if I do have it, um, one of these years I'll find it. So there's a still from I don't know if you can see that. That's from the heli. Yes, that's from the proof. Oh, look at that one. Yeah, black and white proof. So it's um, that's all I found. Oh, how funny! My mum's probably got it somewhere because she, uh, she's like that. Somewhere. I have a I have um a bunch of stills from that day too. Yeah, from somewhere. But anyways, yeah. So um. We'll go through this, Glenn. You probably had. Well, so, anyways, yeah. yeah, legal, illegal. I'm not sure what was going on there. <laughs> I think it's a good thing. It was a good way to wrap up your little Australian um, promo tour. With you know, I thought. But um, yeah. yeah. Well, at the time, you know, you were probably the biggest name in skiing. You know, yeah. um, after all the Greg Stump films, you know, the first one, of course, you did what? You did three of those, I think, um, with Greg Stump. Was yeah, three or four. We did. Uh, Maltese license, um, Blizzard of Oz, of course, and then later I did um, Fistful of Moguls and Doctor Strange Glove. So yeah, five five different official stump films. Yeah, and and at the time, you know, like I suppose you know that was the birth of pretty well, uh, well maybe not the birth, but you were one of the first uh, professional free skiers in the world. Um, and you you, mm -hmm. you reflect on moguls, obviously you're you're skiing. Has evolved, you know. You were the like the full-on hot-dogging mogul skier, and then moved into big mountain skiing, like so well documented um, in Blizzard of Oz, right. etc. Um, right. Where did it start from you? You grew up skiing. You grew up around South Lake Tahoe. I grew up in South Lake Tahoe, so I was exposed to all the hot-dogging of the seventies as a young, you know, up-and-coming skier, uh, full of influence. Um, obviously, we were on race teams, yeah. but we really wanted to be like those hot doggers and those freestylers. They sure looked like they were having a good time. And, um, uh, and racing was something that I was doing, but it wasn't anything I was focusing on really. And then when I became a teenager, um, you know, if you're not in a racing program, it's very, very difficult to continue your racing training. You just don't have a place to train. And, um, I, uh, um, started skiing. Uh, I got kind of asked if I would ski in a mogul competition. I was like, what do you mean? Cause by that time, freestyle skiing had completely died. You know, the, the world tours of the seventies, the seven, you know, the, the, uh, the Chevy freestyle tour of the seventies was long yeah. gone. And, um, and so I was like, they don't have freestyle anymore. And they're like, yeah, they do. They have mogul contests still. They have, yeah, they do. And so I went and did it. And, um, and, I think I got third or something my first going and was like, wait a second. So what do I got to do to win this thing? And I was always a pretty strong technical skier. So yeah. it was just a matter of making some adjustments and kind of, uh, you know, figuring out what the rules were. And, and very, very quickly I had success at mogul skiing. And I went from, you know, mid 
mid teens and twenties as a ski racer to literally a, you know, a top regional and then national mogul competitor about the same time though, my life was, um, you know, as to the age where I was starting to kind of explore and do different things as far as the mountains were concerned. And so we were already starting to hike and ski and the word out of bounds was, you know, part of our ski, um, you know, itinerary and, and back country. And I had people to pull from, you know, there was a lot of, uh, skiing done in the seventies and here in the Sierra. Um, I wasn't completely tuned in with the, the French scene completely, but I did, I was very aware of the Sylvain Sudans. I was very aware of the Patrick Valenzons. I was, you know, I knew that they were going on. I didn't know, have a whole lot of info about them, but I knew this, this world of, of, um, extreme skiing, whatever, uh, you know, a, a spectacle beyond what people called their skiing day was taking place. And at the same time, all this influence as a, as a freestyle skier or a hot dogger of the seventies um, or the hot doggers. So all of a sudden I was kind of just mixing these, mixing these two, I don't know, outcasts of the ski area of the ski world, you know, the, yeah. the, the, uh, you know, the ski mountaineer aspect, uh, you know, skiing steep exploits uh, with the, you know, the freedom of expression of the of the hot dog movement of the 70s and kind of mixed them all together. And it's really kind of what was happening. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you obviously were on the, uh, you made the national team, but then it's, uh, mm-hmm. you made it known that you weren't really keen on the regimentation of that. And um, no. And then you sort of just moved out in your own thing. No, and then one thing that I was exposed to also and kind of had an influence on me, and I recommend anybody, it's all on the internet now, so you can find it all. But there was a group of skiers uh, that were sponsored by Hart back in the late 60s. And they made, uh, if you were to look up Summit Films um, or Serac Films, they're uh, films by a guy named Roger Brown. And they basically um, were the original kind of free riders. professional skiers that were not in fact competing they were you know skiers they didn't fall within the ranks of competition they were mountain guides they were steep skiers they were freestylers um and that that old heart professional team of herman golner tom leroy um um roger staub art fuhr you know, um, and I know they all visited Australia back in their days too. Um, yeah. They were the really probably the first people of, let's say, the professional free skiing ranks. Um, and part of that meant, you know, skiing and ski films. And, you know, we'd sit around the pizza parlors and sit around the ski areas where you guys are and, and you know, watch those old ski films. Um, and at the time, you had to go out of your way to find them. You just couldn't go on the internet. You'd have to yeah. like find that one bar, that one, that one, um, pizza parlor or something that was catering to the to the ski movie crowd and uh, and i'd sit and watch those films and and uh be amazed at the skiing that those guys did um so uh as i was let's say going through my own path and this and that i knew that at some point skiing and photography were going to uh come together in my life and uh it was through the greg stump films and some other uh photographers that i worked with um 
uh, where that in fact happened. All of a sudden, my skiing and the lens, um, you know, crossed paths. Yeah, well, it was a good, you know, like you, you rattle off the, your film career, you know, there's so many movies like over that pretty well annually for 10, 15 years, you know, and those films, right. they were groundbreaking, you know. Like I remember I just started skiing and I met this guy and all he said was, you know, you've got to watch Blizzard of Ours. You've got to watch Blizzard of Ours. It's like the best film you'll ever see. Right. Um, <laughs> we'll still talk about it, you know, like it, it was hugely influential, you know. Yourself, Scott Smith, like two of the biggest names in skiing, then you go on and influence right. the next generation, the McConkie, Seth Morrisons, et cetera. Um, sure. It's sort of it's evolved from then, you know, to those. And still do, and believe it or not. I mean, it's so funny to have meet some little kid and have some father come up and be like, go up, shake Mr. Plague's hand, and you get his autograph, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, funny. Totally. I tried like, to do why that. Don't we just, why don't we just go skiing together, dude? Let's really screw your dad up. So, but um, but uh, I that's even crazier that it's like one generation, two. It's weird to say that now. Here I am. I'm I'm in. I I'd argue almost three generations. I've been polluting the minds of skiers. <laughs> um, um, I, I reckon you're right. <laughs> the uh, uh, I think Blizzard was interesting from the standpoint of at the time skiing was kind of in this. Uh, snooty, stuffy, you know, it was this kind of country club, you know, yeah. the, you know, the, the, the ski resorts were being developed. It was all about the, you know, the, the turtleneck and the Dale of Norway sweater. And we're like, <laughs> that's not the life we're living. Man. I'm living in my car right now. I've been clipping tickets for a year straight. I can't even afford a lift ticket. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were all just ski bumming and, and really living it. And I really think that there was a lot of people, and still to this day that there's like the ski industry, the ski resort industry, and then there's, and then there's skiing and all these people uh, and there's skiers. There's, you know, there's, there's the, you know, the, the vacationing public and then there's the skiers. Yeah, and, I, uh, and I still think that that, that there's without a doubt a, a, a gap there. And, and I think Blizzard, you know, obviously was the voice of the skiers and it kind of made it in the mainstream. And, and then I also, like I was saying, we used to have to go to the pizza parlor, or, you know, the specific place in town to watch a ski film. You really had to seek it out where all of a sudden, because of the VCR, um, people could hold it in their hands or show it to each other and watch it at parties. And, yeah. and uh, so there was, there was some timing issue of it there that, that I think had a, had an interesting impact uh, on everybody that was, affected by blizzard or any of those early films including myself yeah for sure because you like i said you could watch it at home for the first time and yeah yeah you could throw parties and do whatever you know all your friends and well how did uh and then of course you did a lot of warren miller stuff as well which is um yeah you know, more mainstream than the core still core ski movie but yeah different to the stump films we were you know warren miller to be honest was kind of the the that was he was our rival. He was the he was the he was the establishment that we were kind of against. Um, and uh, um, because of some sponsor things and stuff, I've I've had the pleasure of being in a Warren Miller movie, and I'm not gonna get the the, the audience into the tit and tat of the of the ski movie world because it's a pleasure to be in any of them. Um, yeah. But you know when 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 Stump when we were doing our films, it was like. You know, we were ready to take them down. And I, I think we had them 
we had them down at one point and then a few things happened, but, <laughs> uh, but it's great to be, uh, you know, what an institution, uh, like, you know, a, a few other examples in the ski industry where there's just, for whatever reason, it became a stable and it's, and it's, it's great to be a part of it regardless. Okay. Guess well, everybody's stoked. It's that time of the year, you know? Well, you mentioned, uh, the French scene before. And, and it's an all ages show. I mean, yeah. You know, Warren's been dead now for several years. I think that's just, you know, I've always said skiing is kind of an all ages show. And, and I think, um, um, uh, and I also have always kind of made the joke that it's a life sentence. And I think, you know, Warren's legacy is, is certainly a testimony of, uh, regardless of the generation, regardless of the era, regardless of the equipment, regardless of the trick, regardless of the conditions of snow, um, it, it, a lot has not changed. And I, and I, I, I think that that's wonder, that's one of the wonderful things about the sport is that, you know, we still have that, um, there's certain institutions that uh, stand the test of time for the good reasons. Oh yeah, definitely. Like I said, it is a lifelong sentence. I do like that. Um, (laughs) you mentioned before being aware of the French scene. Now, a lot of Blizzard of Art, like the stump films, you're in Chamonix. Um, yes. Been there before. You went to film? I had not been to Chamonix before prior. I, I wasn't even supposed to go. I mean, the story's been told in a couple of epilogues, but um, it wasn't until uh, – um, no, I wasn't even supposed to be going to Chamonix. Um, uh, Lynn Weiland got hurt, and so it left a spot open. And uh, I had a twinkling of Bruce Benedict's eye one time one after a shoot that said, make sure you have a passport for this winter. I was like, all right, cool. So I drove to L.A. and – got a passport. And, um, so no, when I arrived in Chamonix, I literally, I, for the first, you know, the first month, I couldn't have told you where I was. Yeah. And it wasn't cause I was, it wasn't cause we were partying. It was cause I flat out was like, what's the name of this place again? <laughs> yeah, I, I, it wasn't until I was there that I realized, Oh, this is where Patrick Balanson's from. This is where Ansambos. Oh, this is that place. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, well- I, I, I went to Chamonix not knowing necessarily what Chamonix is. And I think it's kind of interesting to, to think that, that I was that naive um, uh, going into that. I don't think people realize that. I think people thought, Oh, I, you know, I, I, I don't think, I don't think many people realize that, that I was truly naive to the whole thing. Yeah. But, and, but I sure liked it very quickly. Yeah, I know. I was going to say it's had quite an impact on you. You end up, um, yeah. Buying a place. Are you still got a place in Chamonix? Yeah, we still have our place. In fact, all morning today, I'm <laughs> I, because of COVID, I lost my long term visa and I've got to refile and everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> stupid. You can't just walk into the consulate anymore and have a meeting in San Francisco and you got to do all this stuff. And I went from by this morning, I could have had an appointment on the 11th of November. And by the time the internet finally was working and I got all the passwords in for the 15th time, um, <laughs> I finally got a, I finally got an appointment on the 21st. I'm like, so I lost 10 days in about, I was losing a day an hour as I was, <laughs> um, but no, um, I, uh, we have our apartment there. We love it there. Um, you know, Mammoth Mountain is our base in the United States yeah. and, and Chamonix is our base when we're not at Mammoth Mountain. Um, and, uh, and not only, what's that? Well, they, if you're going to have two bases, Mammoth and uh, I've been to Mammoth quite, yeah, about five or six times. Chamonix only once, but if you're going to have two bases, they're the two good ones to have. 
They're both very, very reliable. That's why I like them. I don't care what time of the day of the year it is. Go to Mammoth or go to go to Chamonix and 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 you'll be all right. You know, and whether it's winter, summer, fall, there's going to be something to do. There's going to be an aspect. There's going to be an activity. There'll be an altitude that you can play with that'll get you uh, get you what you need. And both of them have snow packs that, again, are very reliable, um, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, they're committed to having having, uh, you know, having the big long seasons. And, and whether it's those late spring days or those early fall, um, you know, days that both of them are again they're 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 reliable sometimes the snow might not be good but all all they always got snow <laughs> well that's that's fine um so what was it about Germany yeah. that attracted you to the point where you, you know you kept coming back um and i think was that the start of your ski mountain like your true ski mountaineering like the radical stuff yeah i mean like i said i had been climbing skiing in the sierras and was getting the you know, the work was getting done and, and I was, you know, learning and, and realizing that the skiing beyond the ski areas was, um, you know, existed and was something that I was more and more interested in. Um, and I also, um, you know, at that time, getting into some personal stuff, I was getting into a lot of trouble. Um, things were not going, uh, things were not good for me as far as how much, you know, what, where and what I was going to spend the rest of my life doing and and it was all based because i really wanted to go skiing and i had these skiing ideas and i had this this kind of i didn't have idea like i didn't have a checklist i didn't have a list but i just knew that skiing was a part of my life and i and i knew that that was where i needed to be um when you're dealing with the local authorities and they ask you what you know do you have a job and you're kind of like uh yeah i kind of work part-time um okay so you're a skier are you on the u.s ski team uh, nah, nah, I made it, but I didn't really like it. So I gave up the spot. Um, okay. So you're, uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the, you know, are you going to school? Mm, no, I don't have time for school. Uh, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on when you're, um, a young adolescent trying to figure out where or what to do with yourself. Um, and in North America, um, well, I, you know, I just want to ski around and, and you got to trust me on this one. That, 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 that was not an answer that they were ready to, to give any leniency to. Um, when I got to Europe, I realized that, um, this is a place that is completely the opposite of the United States. And they actually do recognize what skiing is and they do recognize what individuals that have some skiing talents are doing. And so, um, I realized that this is the place I need to be. If, if I'm going to continue this, whatever it is, path that I'm going down, it I had to be here, or and I mean Chamonix. Um, yeah. And uh, so when we went to film Blizzard of Oz, it was supposed to be a three-week trip. And when everybody else was packing up their gear, I did not leave. I said, why would I leave? I have nothing to go back to. Yeah. Um, in fact, I got a bunch of problems that I can go back to, but I don't want to go back to that and so i can say as everybody else was packing their bags heading home i made the decision that uh, i don't need to go anywhere and i stayed in chamonix another uh, 22 months before i finally made it back to the united states oh wow and and it was it was at that point that i realized this is where i'm going to spend most of the rest of my life or yeah. a lot of, this will always be a big part of my life yeah and i suppose in that 
during those that period of time, the next 10, 15 years, just did spend heaps of time in um, Chamonix. And yeah. those series of films, I mean, it got to the point where, you know, with the Mohawk, you're the most identifiable skier in the world. But beyond, actually, this takes me back that early scene in Blizzard of Ars, you're hanging in Chamonix with the, I think, leopard skin pants, print pants. Yeah, probably like, flames, leopard, yeah. something. Flames, yeah. And I'm going, well, you know, hanging there having a cup of coffee, looking a little bit different to the average yeah. um, Chamonix burger working down the street, you know. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I I, uh, I realized I needed to be there. and But at, at the same time, and um, maybe I'm a- answering the next question or whatever, but um, – you know, I got asked when I finally did get back, I was being interviewed. And they said, you know, do you consider yourself, you know, one of the top stream skiers in the world? And I said, no, because I had just spent 22 months in Chamonix. Yeah. And they then they were specifically asking about extreme skiing by yeah. definition. And my answer was no, but give me 10 years and I will be. Yeah. Because I realized I had that much work to do um, from a standpoint of becoming a a ski mountaineer, not just a, a hot dogger that could throw some airs and rip bumps <laughs> that yeah. had some steep skiing aspirations and some, um, you know, ha- and had the pleasure of skiing some steep things and some, some big things. But I, I, I was, I was not, um, at that time doing any, you know, the grand courses, I was not skiing any of the big, you know, mountain itineraries, which over the last, you know, several decades i have in fact had the pleasure of doing so but yeah then i asked that and they asked because they thought oh yeah you're the greatest in the world and i was like mm, not in, not when it comes to that okay. well, <laughs> there's this other crew over there i mean tardavel it just i would i i saw tardavel ski the pillar to angel and that wasn't anything near anything i was capable of doing no way i mean i wasn't even, not even close yeah well, i was just you know i was jumping and ripping and hot dogging no doubt and he i've skied with pierre a bunch you know i'm always telling him like dude one of these days i'm gonna make you do a backflip <laughs> <laughs> like i would never do a backflip i'm like i'm gonna make you do a back <laughs> um but um anyways no I, I knew it was a great it was a, a i saw a great future for myself personally there as a skier and and then obviously being in in Europe where the industry was more based, some opportunities came my way. Yeah, well, you've had a as we said earlier, lengthy you know, career as a pro skier. Now, going back, um, I'm in this shop in Trebo, and there was a photo of you in this Rip Curl ad. Like, yeah, so I think um, shot by Tony Harrington in Craigieburn, I think in when you're uh-huh. you skiing for Rip Curl, your photo shoot. There's you. You mentioned Warbs, Daniel Warbrick before yeah how did you end up as a rip curl athlete sponsored skier oh man that was you you're breaking my heart because my literally one of the most the my my favorite relationship that i think i've ever had with a company and a group of individuals that make up the company is my days with the curl I was actually, I was making jokes yesterday to someone who, who knows Claw. And I was just making jokes as that, how he gets his hands all together. I don't know if anybody knows Claw. Oh, and it's like a little kid, like, oh, this is going to be great. And he gets all excited and he starts jumping around. And I'm like, I was just saying how, how, how funny that would be to have like, you know, 
a corporate, you know, a CEO in today's world, you know, start yeah. slapping his hands together and giggling like Claw used to do when we came up with ideas or we're planning some trip. <laughs> it's so cool. Oh, I loved it. Um, and I really loved that relationship. It literally it came down to a change in some distribution in North America that yeah. um that uh, ultimately brought that to a close and and it it it's so sad um because i i loved it and now uh, going back to gosh this is the weirdest thing my career is full of these bizarre like premonition almost voodoo moments but um when i was a little kid i told you i, was, I grew up in south lake tahoe and there was a lot of hot doggers hanging out yeah and they always used to wear neoprene pants the old O'Neill pants and rip yeah. curl pants, right? And so here I am, I'm riding a chairlift as probably a seven or eight-year-old. And I see this guy in these red neoprene pants and I get on the chairlift with him. And he's talking with a funny voice. And so it was one of the first times where I'd heard a funny voice other than my Austrian coaches and their accents. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I remember about this man is he had a black tooth. Uh -huh. And I was sitting here thinking, hmm, interesting. So here I am. So now, some 20 plus years later, I'm hanging out with Warbs, and the, there's, there's some talk about me becoming a part of the curl. And I end up meeting um, Claw, and I hear who he is, and I start telling or hearing his story. And I go, so. I really believe in flash memory. There's a lot of flash memory in my life. And I think everybody has some flash memory or something. So anyways, um, I, um, I said, look, man, back when I was like a little kid, I got on a chairlift with a guy who, uh, had rip curl pants on probably was like late seventies. Um, it was in South Lake Tahoe and, uh, the guy had a black tooth and, Claw looked at me and was like, uh, <laughs> so as weird as that is, yeah. um, whether I'm an elephant, I don't know, but I rode the chairlift with, with yeah. Doug Warbrick in the late seventies and they had just made the first rip curl ski pants and he and Brian Singer were like in California skiing and I just happened to get on a chairlift and I don't forget that moment as weird yeah. as that sounds. Yeah, well, like you said, I didn't like, make that up. I you know, truly like, didn't make that. The, the, the claw hasn't changed. I claw for that. Listeners, um, Doug Warbrick, you know, founder of Rip Curl, but yeah, he always so oh, God. <laughs> like such a core dude, and still is. He still jumps up, clapping yeah. his hands. You know, be watching the. Uh, he, I got to. Uh, I finally, I ne I didn't know how to surf. I couldn't surf. Yeah, and everybody would always ask. Him, Hey, yeah, certainly. Like, I, I mean, I can bob around the water. I can swim good. And finally, one year, it may have been after, may have been uh, one of it was after one of my Australian trips. Um, I stayed at Claws for for six weeks. Yeah. In and then I surfed every day, all day. I was in Torquay, and I'd wake up in the morning, and there, sitting on the table, would be like my my itinerary for the day. No matter what time it was, Claw had what break I was supposed to go to. <laughs> who I was supposed to call to surf with and what board I was supposed to grab. And this went on for six weeks. Um, every morning he would have my 
like he would sit at night and be like, okay. And then he'd look at my level at how I'm surfing and, and, uh, and be like, okay, you can use this board now and you need to go surf at 10 o'clock with this guy because the break's going to be doing this and the tide's going to be doing this. And it was the, one of the coolest things I've ever had happen to me. And, uh, by the end of it, I was, I was, uh, I was able to surf. I'm not necessarily a surfer, but, um, I can surf. I have the, I have the ability. If you wanted to go surf, I'd say, yeah, let's go. I did this. Um, and, uh, um, and then that story, my gosh, you know, you have the Dogtown crew of LA and, and all their egotistic reasons to do the things that they've done, whatever. And I really, I, I think that whole Torquay, um, you know, Rip Curl, um, Quick and Billabong, that's a crazy story that the world needs, deserves to hear. And the individuals that made that story lived that story, created the brands and had the influence on so many people around the world. That's a crazy story. I love, I love that whole, that, yeah. that, that somebody out there, I hope some documentary guy listens to this and goes, Hey, wait a second, let's do that because it needs to be done while they're still alive. And, and cause those are, those are cool dudes, man. No doubt. No um, doubt. Yeah, yes. It's just a love of, um, love of surf and love of snow created everything, you know, now with, um, you know, I suppose that was all like early nineties, judging from the uh, the one piece you're wearing in the yeah thing. So, yeah. But as as a skier, your skiing developed like the mountaineering was always a big part of. You know, it became more and more obviously moguls have always been an integral part of your skiing. You still love smashing the bumps. Still but, love um, it. Still love it. I want to take you like as the big mountain skiing became more and more, and you you started having more challenges, of course. Now this took you to Nepal in 2012, huh? and yes, know, at uh, Mansalu you were caught in that avalanche. Um, yes, that night, like um, you know, unfortunately, you know, there's it's just an amazing. Well, how does that affect you now? Do you reflect on that ten years ago? You know, it's like it's ten years ago. I um, it's um, yeah. I mean, obviously, when you're dealing in the high altitudes, um, you know, fate. Uh, is something that you don't necessarily have control over. Um, and um, I lost a couple of great friends and, um, you know, and no, it wasn't a, it wasn't that great of an experience. It's, it's sad. Um, and then it, there again, I mean, we say avalanche, um, it was actually a Serac fall was it? Um, that caused a big avalanche that ultimately caused a wind blast. We were hit by a wind blast. Um, we weren't even associated. I ended up almost a, mile away from where most of the uh casualties took place um i had been literally pushed off a completely different direction and started sliding um and um yeah without getting into all the details of that um uh it was yeah not not a good thing um and people still to this day are 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 traumatically you know challenged by that um i don't think much about it um i had there's a bunch of reasons why my taper away from the accident um was uh was good i was very very lucky that i had a climb manager that insisted that i, I walked off the mountain that i didn't take any rescue helicopters that we you know got back to base camp that we established you know kind of ground zero for my own self um there was a lot of 
accidents that took place. The fact that I was able to get to a cell, uh, a satellite phone and, and contact my wife before the world even knew anything about it. And she was able to get the word out that the, you know, the press is about ready to hit the, you know, hit the fan. And I've received word from Glenn. We don't know his condition, but he's alive. Um, you know, I mean, there was, there was all these bizarre happenstance that, that helped my taper from that. I will say that this year, um, being that it was, you know, 10 years from it. And then ultimately there was another accident up there and some people got hurt and, 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 and lost their lives. It was a bit weird to get some Texas on, on and around that date. And yeah. I also had another friend on Manislu and I was watching his success and I saw that they had a big snowfall and, and I, I, um, I was thinking to myself, gosh, there's some, I'm not saying deja vu, but there's some similar conditions going on here where there's heavy snowfall. Yeah. Anyways. Um, and, um, so yeah, the fact that they ended up having a, an accident up there, I feel bad for everybody. Um, and again, I wouldn't need to be honest. I wouldn't even have noticed too much if it wasn't for a bunch of, uh, uh, caring texts from friends and, um, you know, that, that were, you know, watching other people on, on the mountain this year. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was one of those things I'm lucky. I'm, I, I have no reason at all to be alive at all. It was 100% luck. And after that, how does that, you know, like, like you said, you, you know, referring to like Hillary Nelson, you know, recently and how does that affect, like there's always uh -huh. danger in ski mountaineering. Um, after you have sure. the closest near miss you can possibly have almost, um, how did you deal with it and head back up on the mountain? Like, is it always in the back of your mind or are you just sort of a bit more? Yeah. Um, I, my, my first trips back up on the mountain were on rock. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Too. Yeah. Yeah. We did a lot of, we did a, just a lot of light rock, <laughs> a lot of light rock work after that. Um, and then, um, um, yeah, I mean, the oh man you know this dang avalanche thing is such a such a such a, a mess um not only from a prediction standpoint or a management standpoint or you know we we talk ourselves into thinking we can make assessment and and we can certainly we can we can um we can um you know go through the protocol that will certainly hopefully either raise our expectation or raise our tolerance of risk <laughs> yeah, yeah. or, 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 or teach us to ignore it. I'm not sure yet. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's there, uh, again, in one way, because Manislu is a giant Serac fall, um, you know, there are other circumstances that affect me more from a skiing standpoint. Um, where I've in fact been, you know, involved in, a, in an af in an avalanche where I've made a critical mistake or I've, um, you know, did something that truly, you know, now I'm involved in an avalanche. I, I'm engaged in this where the Manislu thing was such a, uh, a, a bizarre um, uh, environmental 
you know, disaster that we just happen to be around. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a little bit different. Like I said, there's some other things that have happened in my life that unfortunately probably have more effect on my skiing than, uh, than the, uh, than the accident on Manasseur. Well, it's, it's almost like, you know, we talk about the you know, extreme sport and exposure in anything, yeah, you know, in nature where it's steep and, and dangerous is inevitable. Sure. There are going to be some casualties. But moving on from that, I suppose you just go, okay, this is, this is it. This is what I do. I'm just going to um, be as careful. And, uh, yeah, know. I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody looking for it. No. I don't think we're going to look for it. You know, we don't, we don't go climb mountains to go look for it. Anybody that does is, 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 you know, is not, is just talking out their ear, um, uh, or somewhere else. Um, I, um, and then it's funny. I, I actually, <laughs> I spoke the eulogy at my grand or at my father-in-law's, um, um, funeral. And it was, um, he was an older gentleman that lived a pretty full life and, had two wonderful daughters and, and, uh, ultimately passed away. And, um, at the same time, it was one of those years where there had been a lot of deaths in the ski industry. Yeah. And I, um, uh, and I was, and they, they were considered tragic deaths because, you know, those are young people dying. Those are out, you know, that's not supposed to happen. Yeah. And I, I just found it interesting that like, here's this older gentleman that passes away. And is it okay to say that, well, he died. Of course. I mean, he was in his eighties. He was a happy old guy and he died and that's okay. Where society won't accept 24, 25, 34, 32 year olds out dying. They, we don't accept that. That's like, Whoa, Whoa, wait a second. That's yeah. not supposed to happen. Um, you know, and I, I, I was dealing with this Baptist preacher trying to help me, um, you know, find the passages and, and, uh, um, you know, and I'm like, I want to talk about timely deaths and untimely deaths. And he's like, uh, <laughs> nobody's really wanted. So, uh, we had an interesting deal. Um, anyways, um, and at the same time I explained to him, I go, and you know, what really makes me upset is that when people die an untimely death, there's such a thing to say that that we all have this stupid cliche well they died doing what they love doing <laughs> you're like really are you sure <laughs> and i find yeah. it um i can't stand that cliche it freaking drives me crazy because i've almost died love doing what i love doing several yeah. times yeah. and that is not true <laughs> i would be furious if that's what took me out and that's what my loved ones had to live with and yeah. and i just anyways <laughs> it's you know, and we all everybody says everybody says it. at least they died doing what they love doing you're like what a terrible way and what a terrible time <laughs> to, to die <laughs> so anyways never a good time no exactly so um <laughs> i remember yeah with your mobile skiing you were so into it you still love like i said before smashing the bumps like Freestyler. I mean, now you you spend a lot of time in Mammoth, uh, which has yeah. a bit of everything as far as um, terrain goes. You got all yeah. that big stuff up. Absolutely. The top. And then you've got like all these terrain parks throughout it, which is, I suppose, uh, is it you know contemporary freestyle? What do you thought? Do you ever sort of do a, a few laps through the South Park in Mammoth? I don't mind ripping through the park occasionally. Sometimes I get in 
and do it. And like, oh yeah, that jump's pretty cool. I'm going to go ahead and start sessioning that. Or I'll hang out with some younger guys, you know, some of the kids I'll be skiing with the chargers and they'll, they'll of course want to go to the park. And yeah. I certainly enjoy it. Um, it's amazing what they've can do in the park. I mean, yeah. what has become, I mean, gosh, I remember me and Stephen Lee doing, you know, trying to do seven, uh, uh, 10 eighties, you know, yeah. and it was like, Whoa, like you can't even accept that. I can't even, uh, I remember me and Stephen Lee doing the first helicopters where we're reaching down and grabbing our skis, yeah. you know, and, and people, oh my gosh, what are you guys trying to do? You know? So to think that, uh, I, it, it's amazing what's happened. If, um, if I, and I will say, I don't like, I am a little upset at how manipulated that it's, 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 I'm a little upset at how much it's manipulated the natural skiing environment. Right. That kind of freaks me out because, um, it is, is, is it, is skiing and riding and snowboarding, whatever you want to do. Is it that bad that you got to have this manufactured, manipulated environment to exist? And, and at the same time, um, what it takes to make that exist, the snowmaking, the, 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 the snow cats that, you know, without getting a, without being a greenie, um, they're, um, they're, it's pretty, pretty intense what it takes to make those parks and to maintain those parks. And, and, um, and I just wonder if, yeah, it's just, I, I have to say it because it, it makes me wonder. So, yeah, but yeah. I love watching what's going on. I think it's freaking amazing. The athletes are mind boggling. What's going on is incredible, but I just, I don't think people realize, and I don't even think the athletes realize what it takes to have those manufactured features. I mean, I know for a fact, because I live right at Mammoth and I, I see the, five or six snowcats operating 24 hours a day. Yeah. You know, I, I see the, I see the hundreds of gallons of diesel burning 24 hours a day. The snowmaking is incredible. The system's mind boggling, you know, to create those features. So anyways, I, I'm kind of, I guess I'm into natural skiing or more yeah. natural skiing. That's why I like skiing bumps. You know, they're so eco, they just appear by themselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, um, I read something recently <laughs> where you talked about um, skiing for the love of skiing. Yeah, yeah. How people always, um, yeah. Jeremy Jones said it once um, so nicely. If, if you only want to go up and ride powder, if riding powder is the only joy you get out of skiing or snowboarding, <laughs> you're not going to enjoy yeah. skiing or snowboarding because there's all those other. No, you, and you said, yeah. I think it was something along the lines: you forget the love, why you love the sport. It's not about the conditions; it's about actually skiing the core of skiing yeah yeah no it's the whole thing you know it's the day it's the it's the prep for it it's the anticipation of it the fight i mean you know we used to ski big old long skis we did it because we could yeah. it wasn't because it made it easier it made it 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 was for self-satisfaction to yeah. be able to do it with those that you know to create that and at the same time uh i'll be the first to say um in fact i I was guiding last year and we had some hideous conditions and I felt terrible and there was nothing we could do. And, uh, and the guys were not having a good time and we were doing everything we could to get them through the, through the conditions. And, and they had done a bunch of heli skiing and, and they had done a bunch of, you know, kind of this 
you know, postcard skiing. Yeah. And I said, you know, do you remember every run you've ever taken heli skiing in Canada? <laughs> and we're like, well, no, of course not. And I was like, will you ever forget this run you skied in Chamonix? <laughs> They're like, no, I never will ever forget this run. I mean, well, there we go. Let's have the rest. We're, we're several hours from being off the valley floor. Let's enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how bad the snow is, enjoy it. <laughs> today the mountain is kicking our ass so go ahead and traverse and when you're ready to turn jump up as high as you can and let's turn those skis the other way it's <laughs> <laughs> just the way to go do not try to turn down the fall line please i don't want to have you or me hurt <laughs> no, no, I, as a as a guide like especially in chamonix you know like how do you assess people's um not only just their ability, but their like family can be quite intimidating. A lot of the terrain. Do you find people overestimate not only their skiing ability, but also their ability to deal with what can be pretty intense situations? Maybe always. You know, everybody, everybody always overestimates their ability most of the time. You know, I want to, I want to ski the steep and deep. And you're like, okay, hey, let's go over here. What are you doing? Trying to kill me? I'm all no. I just get a warm up. <laughs> We're not even close. <laughs> Um, at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, um, uh, when you do a client assessment, you go, oh, so what's your skiing background? And the guy goes, well, well, I grew up in the Midwest as a mogul skier. You go, awesome. We're going to have a good time. <laughs> you know, he's like, I grew up in a 300 foot ski area, but I, I did do some mogul competitions as a, as a junior skier. I'm like, cool. Perfect. <laughs> Cause, uh, I know they're going to be quick to their feet. They're not going to, they're not going to care what they're skiing on. They'll be, they'll, they'll have that creature habit feeling, uh, you know, in their mind and, uh, versus somebody that's, yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, you know, ski powder every day and I got this and I got that and I got this and that. And you're like, yeah, all right, whatever. This guy's going to typically be a pain in the butt where some, somebody or, you know, it's funny or yeah, somebody that has has some sort of structure in their skiing career, especially like say as a bump skier or a, or a you know and obviously a ski racer too, um, you know that that structure is in the back of their mind or back of their skiing. So chances are that they're uh, they're in a better position to enjoy adverse natural conditions than somebody who. Um, has been getting after it, you know, every ski vacation they go on. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, speaking of adversity, I just, um, when we were trying to set up this interview, you were sort of off, uh, out of action, out of contact for a while because you were doing what I think would be one of the most gruesome things I could possibly do is like the, the 508 ultra cycling event. Man, like, <laughs> what are you thinking? <laughs> Yeah, if road cycling isn't bad enough, let's do it for 500 miles. <laughs> yeah, that's a special one for sure. Yeah, so you into the it's cycling, uh, you know, like water skiing, the, the off-road, um, your summer activities are sort of you know, nothing too mellow, you know, not just going to hang down L.A. and Orange County and hang on the beach. <laughs> no, definitely not. No, um, I uh, – yeah, we, we've always made the joke, I got gasoline and gravity, and balancing the two of them is really hard for me, <laughs> especially <laughs> those are my yin and yangs. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we uh, you know, we love our boating. We love going, you know, doing our jeeping. We play with our stock cars here at the local racetrack. Um, 
Um, you know, I'm a bit of a bit of a petrol head as far as not because I'm a petrol head, but because I really like doing things with my hands. I like creating, you know, and I like working on something, making something work. I love taking an old Jeep that hasn't been ran in 20 some odd years and putting it all back together and, and going and having a good camping trip with it. Um, at the same time, my bicycles are, um, same deal. Just a very mechanical thing. I think skiers in general are mechanical engineers because just the, <laughs> the nature of our sport, um, uh, whether it's the way the lifts work or the mountain works or the way our body works. Um, I also, so I had a, when we were young ski racers, it was like you either played tennis or you were a cyclist. You know, yeah. that's what, that was dry land training back in the, when I was younger. I didn't really like tennis that much. So we, we rode our bikes, you know, that, that got me riding bikes and realizing how important cycling can be. Yeah. Um, there again, I mean, during the Le Mans era, you know, he was from our area and Le Mans was a skier prior to being a bicycle racer. Um, you know, so I, I don't know, Greg, but I, I knew what he was doing when you know, there was news reports of this local kid doing what, what the heck he was doing. And, um, so anyways, yeah, I've always, I, and I love it. I, I have four, ridiculously impeccable vintage race bikes that I've, I've had since they were new that I've collected or, or I got through one various story or another. Um, and then I have my modern race bikes, of course, too. So I just love the, I love the mystique of a Puyagi with, you know, super Ricardo, or I love a, a Geos Torino in perfect condition. Uh, and you know, that, that, you know, race the tour in the old days and, you know, in that that crazy era of of just sheer, you know, sheer physical test, yeah. and um, and then with my water skin and everything, I mean, I'm I'm a big, you know, I, someone. I think I just did a post on Instagram the other day, and I didn't even pay attention to what I was saying. But it's like full body workout at speed against force, and yeah. I think that's <laughs> what I'm into. <laughs> I, I like having force against me. I like having my entire body involved and, um, I'm not a speed freak, but speed is obviously, um, uh, um, you know, a, a source of force yeah. in one way or another, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, and then the 508, you know, that's a deep one, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, a deep physical commitment. I, I, I think it's why I like climbing mountains so much. I think it's why I like enjoying racing the 508. It's the same thing why I continue to race the Baja 1000 and I specialize in the night sections. Um, I like being in a situation where it's really easy to quit. But yeah. if you do, it's all over. And so yeah. you wouldn't quit if you had to. I had <laughs> I, I bonked one time really bad. I was really, really hurt. And, uh, and someone said, is, that, is he going to abandon? And uh, my team member said, uh, no, he's too dumb and stupid to quit. <laughs> I mean, through all this, I mean, you, you know, your, your wife, Kimberly's been, um, well, well, yeah, your partner through all this. and um, All, couldn't do it without Kimberly. And, yeah, and she right. she does everything to, to uh, uh, how I say it, um, feed the addiction. It's not addiction. No, Kimberly goes out of her way to, make sure that when I am in fact, the racing environment that I'm the best I can be. Yeah. And then preparing for that. And there again, I really dig 
situations that take a long time to get ready for. Yeah. And you can't, you're, unless you're ready for it, you cannot do it. You cannot fake it. This is not a camera angle. This is not a conditions. You're either ready to ride a 500 mile ride or you ain't. And, and getting ready for that is another whole process. It takes months and months of dedicated, um, you know, time and, um, and Kimberly's there supporting it constantly, yeah. constantly and, and, and enjoying it herself. We, when I do a lot of the big, big rides, she'll, she'll drive the van ahead and then she'll back ride. Now I can do the double mileage and I pick her up and we get to spend time together and, and, uh, um, and same with skiing. Um, Kimberly was a, a great recreational skier. When I met her, she was a Texan that, you know, had skied, you know, um, I'm so proud of her. You know, she's now a level three instructor. She, uh, you know, guides a bunch of women's groups through the Alps. She is a great inspiration to a, a bunch of women that would normally be sitting around, you know, the Twin Elks Lodge eating their freaking veal medallions in their Bogner one-piece suits. And instead, Kimberly's got these ladies, you know, asking me, is there any way you can do like, you know, an ice axing school or, you know, can you, can we just go cramponing around so that I can, you know, go up and down the ridges easier when I'm at Chamonix? Cause I feel, can we just go rappel off of stuff? So I don't feel bad out, you know, buying on the rope or, I mean, and again, these ladies are, they'd normally be in Aspen eating, eating elk medallions. And, uh, and she's a big inspiration to them. I'm really proud of everything uh, that she's becoming. So I'm, I'm lucky. I'm extremely lucky. Well, you know, I proposed to her on the airplane coming back from Australia. Did you? Because you've been married since, what, 91 or something? Back from Australia. Oh, glad. glad yeah. Hey, Kimberly, <laughs> grab, the, grab the painting off the wall, please. Um, her wedding dress was bought in Australia. Oh, all time. There's all sorts of Aussie stuff going on in and around our wedding. Uh, I'm going to have her grab our, um, our wedding invitation. Yeah. Um, because I, I plagiarized, I stole, <laughs> I stole, um, a, uh, a Ken Doan. Do you know who oh, Ken Doan is? He was a cartoonist. Like an artist. Yeah. The artist. We stole that. That's, that was our wedding invitation. That is epic. That is epic. Well, that was our wedding invitation. <laughs> well, Ken Doan is a friend of my mother-in-law, so I'll, uh, I'll let her know. Uh-oh. <laughs> that, uh, no, that was our wedding. That was our wedding invitation. Uh, we used that postcard that we picked up somewhere. Yeah, that's all time. That's all time. Well, you're probably due yeah. for a trip back to Oz. Oh, gosh. Way, way overdue way overdue we were trying to do something there was like a chance to get down there prior pandemic and now I, i'm way overdue i've got to come down there I, I i we got too many too many um yeah i gotta come down we'll figure it out somehow yeah we'll do a bit figure of out some reason to come down there with with elon having this success that we're having with the ripstick and yeah. with the ripstick tour and with um you know with my promotions with mammoth trying to you know bring people from abroad, especially folks that are living on the upside down season. Um, uh, uh, there's, there's a bunch of reasons for me to come down there for sure. Yeah, for definitely. sure. Um, from a promotional standpoint and personal standpoint, more importantly, I mean, it's one thing to fortunately 
travel through work and stuff, but I've always been a big fan. I mean, I'm traveling for personal reasons and if I can make it work, that's okay. Yeah. But with, um, you mentioned the skis, Alan, you know, um, just on another tangent here, uh, you know, look at all the films, you know, just bashing bumps on 210 straight skis. Now, you've been involved in, with Alan for a long time now and with yeah. the construction, is the, the ripstick your baby because they're an epic ski? Yes, it's pretty much my baby. I, um, I, um, uh, we started working on that, you know, so that we had a, a wide body chassis and there were many, many attempts, um, over the, over the years with Elon and, uh, and we finally, we finally nailed one down big time with the ripstick. It's changed the whole philosophy of the brand. It's changed the acceptance of the brand. Um, a lot of great things have come, um, from that chassis, the development of that chassis, and then ultimately the public's reaction to that chassis. And, and again, it, it's changed the whole company. It's changed everything the way they look at ski design and, and, and them as a brand also and, and um, who they can be um, as a brand. And then ultimately by building the, 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 uh, the Ripstick Tour, that was a whole nother uh, stepping stone for the brand from the standpoint of, of, um, of, uh, doing something unorthodox from a design standpoint, um, from, um, from a cosmetic standpoint and from a launch standpoint, the way we communicated, the way that ski hit the market with all these different things, um, um, is, um, uh, has been a, a wonderful, wonderful time to be very honest, very, a wonderful time. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing uh, the doors that open from that you know twenty three year old that went over to Chamonix to do the Blizzard of Oz, and you go and you know he uh, sitting <laughs> talking to me like thirty years later. Um, yeah, know, it's crazy. I mean, the kid in South Lake Tahoe would not have uh, envisaged this whole. No, and uh, and then the whole yeah, I mean. You know, how long is this going to last? You got to make hay when the sun shines. You know, all these cliches that people say. Um, I never really, I didn't entirely buy into any of that. I just went out and skied, did things. Uh, I'll, I'll be the first to say I took advantage of every opportunity that I, that I could, yeah. you know, or tried to. It, as long as it was skiing related, I, I never went down some, I had opportunities to go down some kind of weird tangents and stuff, but it was, it was definitely kind of true to my skiing as much as I could be. Um, it's always been first and foremost, it's always been a place to go if I was in question. Um, and then I got, uh, I had a lot of great people that worked with me. Um, you know, they brought me down to Australia to do promotion and, and ski with people and, and integrate with people. And, um, and uh, so I got I got really lucky there too, you know, that I had these these um, the sponsors that not only were active in promotion but active in using me within their promotion, and um, so I had a lot to lot to be thankful there. And you know, and all those individuals, I you know, I, we spoke spoke about um, you know Claw and and the whole Rip Curl scene. You know, that, that's just one example of of um, of that. I had um, you know. And I, I, it's, I don't mind talking about my former brands because certainly those are great memories, but, you know, 
I had K2 working with me for a long time, but I also now, as of last season, I've been with Elon longer than I was with K2. So I've got a long relationship with Elon now. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, some of those early Oak, Oakley days were surely a lot of fun. It was a great time uh, to be part of a new brand at that point. Yeah. Um, I'm long, long left that brand a long time ago, but uh, the memories that I had uh, down there when we were kind of a cutting edge, you know, and now here it is. I'm I'm reliving the whole thing. You know, I'm with Pit Viper now, and yeah. and and here I am again. I'm going through this whole like I'm living everything all over again. It's super cool with this, you know, young, uh, progressive. Just you know, we ain't what you think we are. Attitude, no. <laughs> you know, it's awesome, and we're not going to be who you think we are. <laughs> Funny you mentioned Pit Viper because they've just launched in Australia, and um, uh-huh. a good friend of mine who grew up here in Threadbow. Ex, like a ski racer, he was World Cup downhill at John O'Brower, two Olympians, awesome free skier. Right. He's he's the dude. He's a pit viper. Um, oh, awesome. Yeah, so I'll have to tell him. Cool. You'll <laughs> get all. Yeah, tell him. Blake says hey, and and there again, you know, there's a brand that that you know was conceived on the tram dock of at, you know at at at, at Snowbird. Yeah, you know, they're making jokes about you know creating a sunglass company and in the world of, of, uh, you know, the ski industry is a tough place to be an entrepreneurs because so many of these, you know, super brands have established, but, you know, there's a perfect example of, of, uh, of something that was a funny idea became reality. I think that's so cool. No, it is super true. cool. Well, um, but yeah, it's been a, been a wild long one. Um, and I, ain't, I ain't getting off the train. No, um, I'm still going. Um, <laughs> kind of i've always said it's an all ages show and i i don't uh gosh how do i say it? i like to say that i still belong i still have a reason to be out here i still have a uh the ability to ski above people's expectations and my own i hope so and it is i try very 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 hard to to you know to continue to inspire myself i think that's why i sign up for things like the 508 where if I've had that, I've had the ability to influence a lot of other people. And I, I, I think it'd be a real letdown for them if they found out I wasn't influencing myself anymore yeah, so, or inspiring myself anymore. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they'd be like, that sucks, man. My, my hero sucks. I try- <laughs> <laughs> doesn't even inspire himself anymore. What's going on? <laughs> he doesn't even give a damn about himself. Look at that. You know? So I try to, I, they, yeah. In one way, they forced me to be better than I am, and I thank them for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, like at the at the core of all this is skiing, you know. So, say one of those yep. days you're in you're in Mammoth, you know, you get out of the truck, you look across, and it's either you know that amazing wind blowing powder they get at the top, or a fresh snow day. What's the anticipation as you walk across to jump on that that lift at Main Lodge? Ah, just to just to feel that feel that pressure feel that pressure against my feet and, and, uh, and, and enjoy what my body does to manage it. I mean, it sounds like a ski instructor talking, but it, that, it, it, that's what it is. I am a ski instructor. So there, <laughs> no, I, uh, gosh, I think I may have just read the textbook on that one. No, uh, <laughs> I sound like a level two instructor talking tech. Um, but anyways, um, no, um, seriously, I really enjoy that 
you know, the, the pressure under my feet and the, the, the differences of that pressure, the differences of that texture, the, everything about that. I, I, um, I, I, I enjoy that aspect of it. I think that's what really keeps me going is just feeling the, all those different. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I, yeah, I might say, Oh, I can't wait to go jump that cornice. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. But I mean, really, why did, why do I jump that cornice? Probably to feel how fast I'm going to land. Yeah. I mean, that's why I jump the corners because I get to land hauling ass and I feel that pressure of the landing and I fight that force that's trying to throw me into the back seat and I put my body into the position that I want to be in and, you know, off we go. Um, and so whether it's, yeah, a big powder day or a groomer day or spring day or, oh gosh, you know, you know, it, it hasn't thawed out yet. So now we're hearing, we're hearing the snow more than we're feeling it well you're feeling it too but you're hearing it <laughs> you know um waiting waiting for that slush to come and and uh do i prefer corn skiing over powder skiing i can honestly say probably yes most of the time yeah. um because uh one uh back to some stuff we were talking about beforehand um you know the avalanche danger is typically pretty low when you're in a slush in a in a you know that that spring snow condition um two there's nobody around everybody's all freaked out about powder just the whole powder freak out scene that's something that i don't i don't do very well with um, at the same time um the uh um they uh you're gonna hear a helicopter get really really loud sorry i've got a i live near a base and uh they uh they love buzzing my house because I'm out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> All right, they're gone. And they, <laughs> anyways, um, um, I, um, you know, um, the, uh, I don't know, I just, everybody, everybody freaks out on that powder snow and it's fun. I enjoy it. Don't, don't get me wrong. But that, that feeling of, of the, of the corn snow is super cool. That it's just nice because it's, it's, still technical you're still feeling the edges you're still feeling the skis you're still feeling all these things that i enjoy about skiing where sometimes powder um you just kind of you don't really feel much of the ski especially now with the big skis yeah yeah no. all right anyways <laughs> <laughs> so yeah long story i i like i like the i i yeah i like that part about it yeah, well, it's um, fall over there, not long. But we're talking season starts pretty soon. What's your program this year? Mammoth and Chamonix back up, or yeah, they already announced they're turning the hoses on. So <laughs> we don't have any snow in the forecast, yeah. but they're already got the hoses on, and and they've already announced the opening date. And it's funny. I mean, it, I'm stoked that they get things going, but it's sometimes funny. I'm like. For instance, when we would go down to Australia, we never would go down there until late July, September, you know, yeah. spring when the when the snow on the ground and then it might snow more. Um, I, I People get so excited to go skiing in November and December up here. It's like them going skiing with you guys in June. And you're like, uh, I mean, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, um- yeah, uh, they'll have a bit of man-made snow on, um, yeah, over at Merritt's on the beginnings there. This year, actually, we had 
the opening weekend was possible. I reckon the best snow of the year. We had two huge snowfalls leading into it. And but that's normally, great. Yeah, but normally it's not yeah. as warm, like you said. Mid July is when it starts kicking in the gear. You know? No, and that's great. We did the same. We had Halloween. We skied the top, you know, three, four feet of new, getting after it. Go, boom, first day. Let's go straight to the top. Yeah, and that was awesome. And I think those day, those years are an exception and we should absolutely cherish those moments um but in the meantime uh they're going to squirt some stuff out of a hose and we'll go <laughs> and we'll go up there here in a couple yeah, weeks and scratch around and then hopefully it snows and if it doesn't well we'll ski that strip for a while and, and get our legs all tuned up <laughs> and uh and uh I like it when they do that, and then then Indian summer will kick in. It'll be like seventy degrees. We should probably still be riding our bicycles, but we're trying to go skiing. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Yeah, I think we definitely got to ski when the snow's on the ground. And I I wish more people would enjoy the late season versus getting all excited about the 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 early season. It's kind of like yeah, whatever. Yeah, late season's always better. Actually, I've got a I've got a way better, way better. We should. I've got a good friend who's one of the lead groomers in Mammoth. Um, do you know Bernie Rossow? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He well, he was here in Fredbo for about three years, four years. Grooming. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Gosh, what a what a talented skier, man! What an amazing skier! Yeah. Amazing skier. Yeah, yeah. He's his. Um, and I hate to say it, but he's an amazing cat driver too. But yeah, he whatever. Is. <laughs> <laughs> he is all right, Glenn. That's <laughs> It's uh, been awesome talking to you. I really appreciate it, and um, I I appreciate it greatly. Thank you. In this, you know, in the day and age of, uh, you know, obviously we don't flip through magazines too much. So the opportunity to talk to people and and uh, um, do the do these things is I really uh, yeah I I enjoy it. Thank you for for asking and and uh, I hope to see everybody out there one of these days. Hope to ski everybody out there one of these days. Yeah, come ski Calum. California. It's a it's a wonderful place, and like I say, with you guys uh, on the flop season there, there's a, all sorts of reasons to. It's funny. I mean, compared to Australia, especially your area, you know that whole ski, uh, you know, surf. It's funny, you know, like California, uh, you know, is not necessarily your your number one ski destination, but it should be. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, I've, I've, Lots really, of snow. I've done uh, Tahoe. You know. Palisades, Heavenly, Kirkwood, and Mammoth. Like, we right. have five or six in a row, Ski California. So I'm on perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, that's perfect. And and as tourists, it's great. I mean, you're right there out in the desert, and it's 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 a, it's a wonderful, wonderful vacation for people uh, from abroad. There's no doubt about it. And then uh, Chamonix, of course, is like no, no, no place other. It might not be the best ski trip but it'll be the best skiing experience <laughs> <laughs> that's very true very true <laughs> all right glenn all right yep thanks for joining us here at chill factor and um, happy trails everyone yep yeah yeah have a great winter pray for snow we'll see you on the hill well that wraps up another chill factor podcast i hope you enjoyed it and if you did please rate review it and share it with friends and we'll be back with another episode in a few weeks until then get out and live and love australian skiing and don't forget you can find us at chillfactor.com yeah, mate, who's ready to go?